0: When most people think about being in the information age, they associate, of course, with the Internet and the access to all the information that we have. And certainly that was true 20, 30 years ago, right? The Internet started to explode. Information is at our fingertips. But if you look at how the Internet has changed, and especially if you lay over the Internet, social media today. And how that has changed, and the types of social media outlets that are out there and are booming. You start to think of things like TikTok and Pinterest and Instagram. And when you look at those, those are experiential platforms. So people are no longer going out to the internet and searching just for a web page that they can read. That's information. What they're looking for is. How do they use the information or even more importantly, how do they experience the information?
1: In her book, Conversational Intelligence, Judith Glasser wrote, to get to the next level of greatness depends on the quality of our culture, which depends on the quality of our relationships which depends on the quality of our conversations. Everything happens through conversations. Welcome to conversations powered by Quantibos. Welcome to conversations. I'm Brian Gorman, your host and a Quantibos coach. And my guest today is Ed Crow who is a talent transformation expert with Ed Crow LLC. Welcome to Conversations, Ed. Hey, good day, Brian. It's good to be here. Ed, I want to jump right in with what may be for some people a controversial statement that you make. Okay. (laughs) Which is, we are no longer in the information age. We are in the experience age. Yeah. Why do you say that? And And what does that mean?
0: Yeah, so when most people think about being in the information age, they associate, of course, with the internet and the access to all the information that we have. And certainly that was true 20, 30 years ago, right? The internet started to explode, information's at our fingertips. But if you look at how the internet has changed, and especially if you lay over the internet social media today, and how that has changed, and the types of social media outlets that are out there and are booming. You start to think of things like TikTok and Pinterest and Instagram. And when you look at those, those are experiential platforms. So people are no longer going out to the internet and searching just for a web page that they can read. That's information. What they're looking for is how did they use the information, or even more importantly, how do they experience the information? So it's one thing for you to tell me, hey, Ed, you know, I went skydiving over the weekend. I say, gee, Brian, that's great. I don't want to jump out of an airplane, right? But it's a different thing for you to go skydiving, attach the GoPro to your helmet, and then post that on your social media feed. So I have that experience of you falling out of an airplane through the sky, right? And so when we look at it in terms of the workforce, it's not enough for us to tell prospective candidates for employment what we have to offer. They want to know what they're going to experience with us. And that's what's differentiating companies today and why we're in the experience age. And honestly, the pandemic really threw gas on that fire. You I know, mean, All of a sudden, you look at how online shopping took off and this, this need of immediacy, And our, our, what we used to think was immediate gratification has, (laughs) I mean, those, those seem like ancient days, like, oh, gee, I order a package, it comes in two days. And that's, that's immediate gratification. Now, gosh, I can order something on Amazon right now to show up on my doorstep tomorrow morning. I mean, this is, it's, you know, so our expectations have changed in what we want out of our experience with companies, not just as employees, but as consumers. And those
1: lines are actually blurring. I absolutely am aligned with everything you say, except I'm not jumping out of an airplane. (laughs) I don't blame you. I'm not
0: doing it either.
1: (laughs) But I do absolutely agree that COVID was a catalyst for a change in the workplace, the workplace experience, the mindset and behaviors of people in the workplace and a driver for changing how we need to lead. In the workplace. What does the experience age say about leadership?
0: So today's leader has to be a little more nimble. And, you know, especially when when you lay over hybrid workforces and remote workforces and distributed workforces and, you know, and everything we've got going on there. So the skill set is is so much different today in many cases than simply going out on the floor, let's say, and and All of your people are right there. You can do a scan and I see all my people and I see what they're doing. So leadership today is a little bit more of a challenge. However, one thing we know is that the younger generations, while they need supervision and, and want it, they're also quite comfortable working on their own with some direction. And so I think one of the biggest skill sets that most leaders today have to concern themselves with is how to delegate and assign work appropriately. You know, how do I train that person who's halfway across the world, much less halfway across the state, how to do the work that I need done when I can't just walk over to their station and look at them working? Right. So that that I think is the biggest challenge for us as leaders. And of course, there's lots of debate out there right now on, you know, should we be working remotely and should everyone be back in an office? And and you'll hear, you know, the, the cases for, the cases against. I don't know where I come in. I think it's probably somewhere in the middle. You know, whatever's right for the person and whatever's right for getting the most out of them, I'm all for it, right? So I'm not a one size fits all kind of guy in that regard. And I think that's where leaders today would do well is learning what their people need in terms of the type of supervision, but then the type of work environment and and how flexible can we be
1: with what that means to work in today's language. Being that leader also clearly, if I'm not looking over your shoulder halfway around the world, requires a lot of trust and requires both knowing how to build trust and how to be trusted. What are some of your thoughts on trust?
0: You know, that that's a, that's a fun topic, and I'll tell you a story. Spring of 2019, so pre-pandemic, I was speaking at a conference, and uh it was a you know i had a room full of hr professionals and the key here is this is obviously this is pre-pandemic right and so we get to talking about remote work and there's this one lady in the front she raised her hand and she says and I, I completely disagree with you you know i don't like remote work i don't know what those people are doing if i can't see what's going on I said, okay i appreciate your point of view but let me ask you something i said do you have full control over the hiring process? I mean, I understand you're probably working with a hiring manager, but oh that, do you have full control over it? She says, absolutely. And in fact, I even guide the hiring manager on the right candidates. Perfect. So what you're telling me then, by your own admission, is that you are recruiting, interviewing, and hiring people that you don't trust right off the gate. And and she kind of looked at me, she goes, well, we'll trust is earned. I said, yeah, and you earn it through giving some trust and seeing how they respond. But if you're telling me that you already can't trust them and they got to prove something to you, then I would argue that your interviewing process is flawed, that you should be bringing in people that you're saying, "Okay, I'm going to give them some flexibility here because I believe they've earned it. And if they burn me, okay, then we're going to have another discussion about that. And so I've often thought, I wish I knew who she was because I'd like to talk to her today (laughs) and see see what she thinks about, you know, trusting in a remote work environment. And so I guess, you know, we were talking pre-recording about where people are located in our our businesses. And and I've always worked uh, like you with a support group who's pretty much all over North America. And so... You know, there are times I've worked with people for months before I ever even shook their hand in person, right? I mean, that's that's today's environment. Again, I think that the whole idea of trust being earned, absolutely, and I think that's fundamental to the human condition, but I also think we have to be willing to trust and willing
1: to develop that relationship and allow that person some freedom to develop that trust. There's a couple of things that come to mind as I'm listening to talk. The first is the many clients who have been called back into the office who literally say, wait a minute, my boss, my supervisor, my leader trusted me for a year, 18 months, two years. And, you know, they continued to pay me, to employ me, to promote me, to reward me. Why don't they trust me anymore? So thinking about that call back to office when it happens and Not what we intend, but what message we're implicitly communicating about that. The other thing that comes to mind is how we tend to trust people we know more than trust the roles that we know. I agree. And so what I'm hearing you say, and and certainly what I'm coaching my clients toward now, is building those interpersonal, not those interprofessional, if you will, relationships. How does that tie into what you're talking about in the experience age?
0: So when I look at what folks need and want out of work today, I wanna tie in another story about a client who was bringing their workforce back. So they they were insurance, they are an insurance company, And so quite easy for them to be distributed even with general office staff. Except during the pandemic, uh, they did have to have some essential people at the office, you know, crunching out papers and sending out documents to customers. As they started to bring people back into the office, not only did some of the people not want to come back in the office, the people who were the core group who were in the office were saying, you know what, we were more productive when these people weren't around. And so... You know, that's a dynamic that, that we kind of forget about, that for a couple of years we operate in a certain environment and now we're, we're clashing that together again, sometimes in the name of culture. And so that speaks to what people want out of their work-life experience. Gone is this whole idea of work-life balance or work-life fit or however you want to, to phrase it. it. It's about my work-life experience because we know that the work and the lifelines are blurred. Right? In many cases, we don't punch out and just go home. Anymore. Certainly, there's a portion of the, the population for which that's true. But more and more, it's, it's becoming less and less true. And so what we have to realize is that folks need to be able to blend what fires them up into their work life. And, and I believe that that takes some digging, maybe through the course of the interviewing process, but it's also important in terms of how we manage them in the workplace. What is it they want out of their work experience, that eight, nine, 10, however many hours a day it is that they're with us, right? And some people listening might say, well, that sounds like real warm and fluffy and all that, but you know, I got a bunch of welders in this hot, dirty environment. You're like, what kind of work experience do they have? And my response to that is, okay, but if I go to school to learn how to weld, I know what I'm in for. I know what I'm signing up for when I go into that line of work. If I choose to go to school to become a licensed practical nurse, I know what that job involves. I know there are some pieces of that that are not glamorous, right? But I've signed up for that through my schooling. So it's this this idea of experience isn't about having flowers in the office everywhere and ping pong tables out on the floor and all these things that we saw back in the 90s. It's about, Today's employees want to say, what am I living while I'm at work? Can I be myself at work? Can I do my best work? Can I stay in my joy and genius zone while I'm at work? And if we can create a work experience that allows our people to stay in their joy and genius zone, goodness, watch out for the results you're
1: going to get. I love how you just talked about singing. <laughs> One of the fundamental questions I've I, like to ask my clients is what makes your heart sing Mm -hmm. and totally aligned with what you're saying. If I can know that before I hire you, I can know whether or not I can feed that. Exactly. If I can't feed that, I shouldn't be hiring you no matter how skilled you are for the position. And if I can feed that, then we've got a responsibility collectively to ensure that we continue feeding that as long as that's your hunger. Exactly. I may be, love, really be passionate, quite frankly, about putting these pieces of metal together and welding them. And I may be that way for 20 years or I may be that way for five. In some of what you've written, I was reading, become the workplace that no one wants to leave. How do you do that? How do you do that with that welder? How do you do that with that uh, engine mechanic? Or how do you do that with that nurse or or that accountant? Mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: So when I look at it, it's complicated and simple at the same time, right? So we we talked about joy and genius zone just now. And so some of it, as you said, is figuring out what that is for someone and feeding it. And if I can keep them fed in that regard, the loyalty comes out of that and the commitment comes out And the productivity. Absolutely. And then then come the profits and, you know, we can, you know, we follow that train. So that's a piece of it. Um, There's a great book out there and it's not new. I mean, I may probably read it 10, 15 years ago by Jack Mitchell called Hug Your People. And in it, this gentleman runs a series of uh, business clothing stores in Manhattan, I think up into Connecticut. And he talks about how, you know, when he had one store, it was easy to know all of his employees. But as he expanded his store base, it got further and further for him to know everybody. But he felt that that was important. And so he had to make an effort to be out of his office and then not only out of his office, but out of each store and spending time with his people. And and he made it a point to get to know his people enough that when he wanted to reward them in some way, other than than maybe an annual pay raise or, or commissions or whatever, he knew things about them. So you know, Brian, he might know that, that you're the soccer dad, right? And every weekend you're running your kids to soccer games. So if he wanted to just recognize you for a little something, a guest card might show up on your desk, you know, or he knows that Sue likes daisies and, you know, she dealt with a rough customer situation. So daisies show up on her desk, you know, those kinds of little things. And to me, again, that's not rocket science, but that is part of the workplace experience that folks are looking for today. Does my supervisor know and care about me? Because they're not going to care about the work environment. They're not going to care about the customer. They're not going to care about the product until they know that their supervisor cares about them. And so that to me is all part of this idea of the workplace experience. So what I don't want our listeners to think about is that, oh, the workplace experience has to be that everything's spick and span and peaches and cream and rose. No, we know work is hard. It's a four-letter word, right? And so, but depending on the type of work, again, I'll come back to, if I'm an engine mechanic. I know I'm in for grease under my fingernails and grease in my fingerprints and that sort of thing. And so it's not about making always the, the workplace necessarily super clean, although that is really nice we can do that. But do we have air conditioning to the extent that it makes sense or heat. And if we don't, and we know it's a really hot day in July and these guys are out there and the floor temps are pushing 100, what can we do for them? Can we do simple things like popsicles and ice cream breaks or, you know, go around with water bottles? I mean, again, these are not rocket science things, but they go a long way towards letting people know when there are extreme uh, scenarios like that, we care about the experience they're having
1: on that day. And that's a leadership thing. Sounds like treating people like people, treating people like they matter.
0: Exactly. You know, and so when I think about the workplace experience, yes, I believe in looking at it on an individual level, because what you may want out of your experience might be different than what I want. And that's OK. And, you know, having said that, I realize we can't please everybody all the time. I do recognize that. But I believe this is one of those initiatives that we don't look at it on a global scale. We look at it as localized as possible. You know, if if it's not the individual worker, maybe it's the work group or the shift or something like that, how can we drill down as small as possible
1: and say, what can we do to impact this group's work experience? You talked about Hug Your People, a, a book that I come back to often is Bob Chapman's Everybody Matters. Yes, that's a good one. Bob is the CEO of now several companies, but I think he, his first CEO role was with Barry Waymiller, which manufactures equipment that manufactures things. <laughs> yes. So, you know, these are people who are working big, hard, gritty jobs. And he learned very early on in his uh, role as CEO that they're people, and not just that they're people, but they people matter. To me, part of what that says is the need for leaders at every level of the organization to talk less and listen more, Mm -hmm. to be curious, to ask questions, to really know what that experience is like for those people who they're responsible for and responsible to. I think that too is a shift in leadership. I'm not just responsible for the work that my team performs, I'm responsible to my team. Mm-hmm. I want to go back, and to become the workplace that no one wants to leave. What happens when that welder doesn't want to weld anymore? Mm.
0: So we have a couple of options. What is it that he or she wants to do? You know, are they... Are they just tired of welding and are, are going to go on a completely different career? Like if they're going to go become a basket weaver and we don't weave baskets, you know, maybe it's how we exit them becomes very important. But, you know, you get that person who 10, 15 years they've been welding for you. They've probably got a lot of knowledge in their head about our products and services. And if they want to be challenged maybe more mentally than physically, what can we do to accommodate that? if anything. And I think those are the things that need to be explored. And I'm not one that believes that a college degree is the end all be all. You know, if you are a supervisor or a manager, I think there are more skills that we learn outside of the, the, the college education system about being a leader than in it. And so could this person with some coaching, maybe with some mentorship, move into a supervisory role of other welders? It's something to look at, right? I learned a a pretty neat lesson a number of years ago. I was working with an organization on their succession planning. And, you know, they thought they had everything kind of locked down and this is what we're going to do. And they really wanted me to come in and solidify it and put pen to paper. And they had basically anointed their marketing person to be the next head of the organization. Only when I sat down to talk to her, she's like, I don't want that job. (laughs) I said, well, what do you want? You're really, really good at marketing. At some point, I would think you would want more. She goes, oh, yeah, absolutely. She says, I'm going to want to manage a bigger marketing budget and a bigger marketing team, which is going to require me to leave this organization to fulfill that dream. And when I went back to the executive team and talked to them about that, they were like, oh, my gosh, she's so bad. I said, OK, but you hear what she's saying, That that her passion is marketing. And sooner or later, she will outgrow what you have. And that's OK. It's time to talk with her and know about what can we do to keep her, if anything, and what can we do to keep her happy while she's still here, right? So many supervisors and managers take it personally in that situation. Say, oh, Well, she's leaving. Oh, she's not loyal to us. Okay, but if we are unable to fulfill her needs professionally just because of the nature of our organization, how can we look at someone and say, you owe us loyalty when we can't give anything more back to them? That's not a a balanced equation at all. And so it opened my eyes to a couple of things, one of which is when she leaves, what's to say that she doesn't provide business to this organization, right? Bring them in on certain things. I've seen that numerous times over my career. I'm sure you have too. And so it's a long answer to your question, but I don't have a defined step A, step B, step C, you know, for how to handle that situation other than we talk to that person and find out what can we do to keep them engaged if they're a valuable employee and what other options can we present to them and, and maybe come up with a game plan to grow them into another job while they're still still welding and things. It doesn't have to be a, you know, a drop dead date, but maybe we can grow them slowly into something. Else. So again, today's workers, they're craving that. They're craving
1: that growth potential, but the definition of growth is different for everybody. When you talked about growing that welder to be a supervisor. We're actually at Quantivo's working with a global company right now that is just in the early stages of moving hourly employees into professional positions. And it's based on experience. It's based on skill. It's not based on having that degree. Excellent. And exactly as you're talking about it, each one of those individuals gets a mentor. And they go through group coaching, what that transition is all about. Because for just as one example, it's likely to generate imposter syndrome. And so we do some coaching on that. They go through self-directed learning and, you know, they're just in their early stages of a commitment driven by the CEO of this global company. Excellent. To make that kind of shift and really focus on experience. You said something else that's important here that I want to come back to, which is how we exit people. Early on in this podcast series, I did a a podcast on feedback. And one of my guests brought a perspective that let's approach feedback from a position of curiosity. And I added to that, everything is feedback. How we exit people is feedback to our current employees, not just the people we're exiting, how we exit people is feedback to those who may explore being an employee of the organization in the future. And now when I think of how so many tech companies have been exiting people over the last six or 12 months, they're not exiting people. Numbers. Numbers. They're exiting numbers. And what does that say about the person, not the number, the person who worked there maybe six months, maybe six years, maybe 16 or 26 or 36 years, is that the feedback that you want to give to the world about who you are as an employer? When I'll tell you, when when I left corporate
0: America quite a few years back now, I was with a well-known organization and enjoyed my time there, but was realizing that corporate America wasn't for me and was getting a little burnout. I was only, gosh, early 30s, mid 30s, but I was already feeling burnout. And uh, you know, we worked hard. We were well compensated for our work, but we worked hard. And when I decided to move on and I sat my manager down and said, hey, look, you know, I have decided to move on. I'll give you as much notice as you need. I can be flexible. But she looked at me and she said, well, I'm not surprised at, you know. And I said, and I want you to know, it's not you. She's actually one of the better managers i work. worked So This has nothing to do with you. You, know, you always hear people quit their supervisor. It wasn't my case, you know. But here's what was interesting. She said, well, we're going to have to tell next level. She goes, do you want to come in for that meeting? I'm like, happy to. So and my two levels up, right? She knew through some career discussions where I, I wanted to take my career and things and that I was getting burned out and, you know, but but was ready for other challenges. And so when we sat down and I said, hey, yeah, you know, I made the decision to leave the organization. Her first response is, well, what am I going to do now? But to myself, that's part of the problem, right, that you have been riding me as your thoroughbred for way too long, you know, and um, and it's taken the joy out of the work that I was doing. And it was getting for me to the point of the inability to take on some of the challenges that I needed to grow into my next level position. And so it was very disheartening at that point. Right. And to leave. And, and I still have a lot of respect for the organization. Uh, heck, my wife works there, has made a career a career of it there. But I looked at that and it was just not it was not a, hey, Ed, can we change your mind? What would change your mind? And, and I don't know if anything could at that point. But to me, that's part of the conversation. Now, where that conversation for me stops is you tell me, well, gee, Ed, I'm leaving. And I said, well, hey, how about I throw you another five grand? Will that get you to stay? now. It's rarely about money at that point in time. I mean, today people will say they're leaving for money and in some cases it is true, but for the most part, it's about the experience of, of what's going on there. You know, she could have said to me, I yeah, will give you another five grand to stay. And I've been like, no, no, something needs to change with my career path because you keep sending me to fix problems and I keep fixing them for you. And there's not a over- mobility, <laughs> you know? So, you know, for me, that was an early lesson. I didn't know to call it my workplace experience back then, but as I look back on it, you know, my experience was, hey, I like fixing things, but after a while, gosh, uh, (laughs) you know, give me a fresh challenge, give me an opportunity instead of a broken thing I got (laughs) to fix.
1: You don't want to fix the same thing over and over and over again. No, no, go to this, don't fix this process, go to this, fix this process. (laughs) Find new challenges to fix. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And so, that was a lesson early on in my career about how important it is not only to keep people challenged to the extent that they want to stay challenged, but when they do come and express that concern of, look, I feel like I've maxed out here or I'm burning out. Okay, well, what can we do about that? Is there anything we do? And recognize that sometimes we can't, right? I mean, sometimes it's just, it's time. But I think engaging in that discussion is important. And I was fortunate to have learned a lot at that organization. I mean, at a young age, to be at a Fortune 500 company, to be in a position of, of responsibility was, was just massive for the rest of my career. But that one interaction, it was just like, really? And it's a shame. And so, you know, what I'd like your listeners to think about is, you know, how do you handle that person who comes to you and says, boss, I'm, I'm getting fried. I think I need to exit the organization. It's not always about talking them out of it, but talking them through it. And if we can solve some of their concerns, then we
1: need to ensure that we actually follow through on it. One of the things that encourages me is that in the last six or nine months, I have probably had four or five of my coaching clients come to me and say, help me prepare for that conversation with my boss. I never would have thought of having that conversation when I was in (laughs) corporate life. And so it says that there are those leaders who people see as approachable Mm -hmm. and not ready to slam the hammer down when they say, boss, this is not doing it for me anymore. Yeah, I don't do much search work at all,
0: but a friend of mine who's COO at a local company called and said, hey, Ed, would would you help us find our first HR person? And I said, okay, for you, I'll do it, (laughs) right? We found a great guy. I mean, he fit, just everything fit into place. They made him an offer. He accepted. He goes back to his boss and gives news. The boss is distraught over him wanting to leave. And he told him, look, it's because of this, this, and this. Like, like you, like the organization, but got some challenges here, right? The boss says, well, what if I commit to you that we're going to get stuff fixed? Would you stay? He calls me and says, Ed, I feel like I need to give him a chance. So I'm bombed. My clients bombed because they had this guy would have been a good fit. Well, guess what I see? Four months later on LinkedIn, he switched jobs. And when we pinged each other, I said, "You know what's up?" And he's like, "Nothing changed." And he was he was very disappointed with his boss, who was the president of the company, but also in that he knew we had a great offer on the table for him, and, and it was an organization he could have really made a difference in. And that's a lesson I think for us as employees, right? That when we are in that position, you know, because as leaders, we have to face those transitions too. What is it that's driving us? And what is the likelihood that an organization will change just because they want to keep us? And that's just, that's soul searching, right? You just have to think about
1: whether that's right for your your near-term future. Ed Crow, talent transformation expert. Thank you so much for this conversation. Any Final words that you wanna share with our audience here on Conversations?
0: Yeah, I would just say that you know, first and foremost, get to know your people. Get to know what makes them tick. Get to know why they came to your organization, why they've chosen the path in it they've chosen, and use that to fuel their joy and genius fire. If you can do that, you will have a workplace that people don't wanna leave, and better yet, you'll have a workplace that will it's like drawing moths to a flame. People will come and want to work at your place because they know you're delivering on the experiences that they want to have.
1: No longer the information age. We're in the experience age. Thank you, A Crow. Hey, my pleasure. Thanks for having me.